Hello and welcome to The Nature Between Us, a podcast for all your eco-inquiries and musings. My name is Tessa, I'm an Aussie actress, voiceover artist and environmental master's student on a mission to demystify the big environmental issues of our time. Join me on my quest to find solutions and positivity from the wide variety of people working towards a more sustainable future. This podcast is recorded and produced on Bidjigal and Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I acknowledge the traditional owners and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. This is episode number eight and the first for 2021. Woohoo! I hope everyone had some time off and hugged some trees. Today's episode is really special because I had the pleasure of speaking with Christian Hampson, a proud Woiwurrung and Manaru Aboriginal man who is interweaving Indigenous knowledge and collaborative design thinking to walk a new path away from conventional approaches. This new path has led him to co-founding Yerrabingan, a commercial design organisation that creates environmentally conscious native landscapes enriched with Indigenous narratives. One such project that Christian spearheaded was the world's first Indigenous rooftop farm that hosts over 2,500 Australian native edible plants and is located on top of Yerrabingan House in South Everly, Sydney. Before co-founding Yerrabingan, Christian amassed over 20 years' experience as a senior cultural heritage manager with the New South Wales National Parks, where he conserved, shared and celebrated Aboriginal cultural heritage. This included caring for country, preserving ancient rock art and repatriating ancestors and sacred objects back to country. Our conversation centres around Aboriginal cultural heritage, what it means to care and acknowledge country, and Indigenous land management, both in rural and urban settings. Christian also touches on the importance of oral knowledge and community kinship, the new Yerrabingan farm currently underway in Bargo, native edible plants, and what we can keep an eye out for when foraging in Sydney. Enjoy! Christian, it is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for finding the time to sit down with me. No worries. Thanks, Tess. Are you, you're in, you're in Sydney, so you're speaking from Gadigal land, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So in my language, you say Womanjika, uh, Maupo Malanyara, uh, Manaru Wairang, uh, Christian, Dagabu Imienga, Gadigal Eora. So acknowledging that I'm on Gadigal country, very close to Bidjigal country though. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because I'm also in Sydney, but I'm on the coast and it's my understanding that on the coast of Sydney, it's it's a combination of Bidjigal and Gadigal land. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So there's, I mean, obviously um, similar clans share a lot of language. Um, there's over 29 clan groups within, and clans probably the best way to describe them. People talk about tribes and stuff, but clans probably is more of that extended family type group. So yeah, so there's sort of that Western side of Botany Bay and, and other places start to spread out and then moving further out is, is Bidjigal. So. Yeah, and then right. Gul is the, so we don't say um, Gadigal people or Bidjigal people, we just say Bidjigal or Gadigal because Gul actually is is the suffix for for person or people. And then so ah. Gadigal, Gadigal relates to the Gaddy or the Caddy tree, which is the Xanthorea. Oh, so wow. Xanthorea grass tree people. Oh, wow. So that's Gadigal is grass tree yeah. people. And yeah. what is what is Bidjigal? Bidjigal? I'm not sure. I actually need to find out, yes. But I just know that I just know that from Gaddy because I know they call it the Gaddy tree. So wow. I'd say that you use it nearly all of them are about it's like 
Hammeragles is 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 a particular space. Um, yeah, so it's used either a description of the place or, or or something that depicts that place as uniqueness. So. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, we often hear these acknowledgements or welcome to countries at at like social gatherings and events. And I thought a really nice place to start our conversation around Indigenous knowledge and, and land management would be to unpack. I mean, we're already kind of unpacking it now, but unpack even further the meaning and the heart behind what these acknowledgements and welcome to countries are, are really about. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's interesting that how it's come about now. I mean, it's it sort of comes from this idea of... Um, passage through country and acknowledging people's country when you're on it and connections through song lines and so um so for us for indigenous people it is about a protocol for going into uh, in, into other people's countries and i was always taught as a, as a young young man by um old uncles and aunties that if you ask the question in the right way you would never be turned away um, but it's all about that idea that you're acknowledging where you go. And then, of course, that um, that there are rules and protocols that you need to understand about other people's country and making sure you don't go into places that you shouldn't, um, shouldn't take things that you shouldn't. Um, but, yeah, but in many ways it's also, I think today as a contemporary thing, it's also for people to be able to really acknowledge and, and understand where they're standing and, and, the, and the concept of country, you know, what that means and, and that it's it's not just about land it's about you know ecology it's about it's about the sky it's about the earth it's about um, water uh, i think is is a really nice thing so i think it's extended but for us it was very much around introducing yourself to country when you come when you're not from that country and then also acknowledging the way that you should enter that country and then and who you should talk to and who you should listen to when you're on that country. Mm. Yeah, especially in a city setting, the uh, I've I've kind of in the last couple of years really learnt about the concept of country and what it what country means. And you just kind of mentioned that it, it is a bit of an abstract term. And and I think especially for people who are living in cities or may have just grown up in cities, it it might be hard to kind of get a grasp on on that concept of country because we're not necessarily in a natural landscape. Yeah, I think it's important for cities that, um, I mean, we always think about, you know, our cultural heritage. In some cases it's covered up but it's never gone as long as it's still talked about. So it's actually still living if, you know, and you, and you, if you think about um, urban environments for Aboriginal communities, there's that still that cultural connection and I think one of the things that we get involved in is very much trying to find ways to have that emerge back in the urban landscape with the design projects we get involved in so that that idea and then and in many cases if something is is there but nothing is known about it then again it's then it's lost it's it's lost its its place and that's such as the the importance of um you know oral history and, and everything within our culture because we don't have a written language and that stuff's recorded in you know in English language the interpretation sometimes is not wholly accurate so the the connection of community and being able to keep stories alive is just as much about about the country as the actual physical components that make it up mm. and so you are obviously a city resident now but you uh you grew up southwest new south wales is that right yeah yeah so um so so manaroo is is where one of my grandparents come from which is the for those of the skiers, they call it the Monero or the Monaro. My uncle always says we're not the two-door Holden tribe. So. <laughs> um, and then Wurrung is is um, my mum's nan, 
which is um, northeast of Melbourne and part in, in part of Melbourne, but up into the end of the Great Dividing Range and where the Yarra River starts and things like that. So there's sort of mountain, essentially mountain. My mobs come from the mountains. I, I yeah, grew up out there and then I started with national parks and then spent a lot of time in Western New South Wales doing rock art work and then managing cultural heritage in that area. And then, yeah, for a long time was working all across the state of New South Wales. Yeah. And so what was it like growing up down there? Like you were obviously out and out in nature, out in the environment quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. Look, mountains is cool. Uh, uh, and look, and I was pretty lucky because we have a strong connection to um, Ewan people, Biddable pe- uh, people on the coast. Um, so we spent a lot of time going on camps and stuff with, with, with the mob down there in the, in the hinterland of the far south coast, which is beautiful. Um, and then obviously up into the snowies and stuff. I spent a lot of time in that area when I was young and then in my in my work later on um so yeah cold different <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm it's funny i really like the coast I'm, I'm i've always grown up liking seafood i'm a very big seafood fan so um pretty good i can outdo my um coastal cousins on prawn peeling and oyster shucking so. <laughs> oh oyster shucking you'd yes. be popular at a party if you like yes, shucking yes, oysters yes, i like shucking oysters so um <laughs> So yeah, like I think it was—I was pretty lucky. Even like when I went to school in Canberra um, in those days, it was very much surrounded by bush and national parks like Namadji, which have got amazing biodiversity and amazing rock art sites and a whole bunch of other stuff, just like within sort of a short distance. So, mm. um, and I think I've only been in Sydney for a couple of years and okay. um, came up with with work, but I was actually um, lived here when I was very young. Um, but during the COVID time, sort of discovered that there's more in Sydney than you would think. Even me knowing that some of the um, art sites and stuff within Sydney, that the things, the little small pieces that are, there are available uh, are pretty amazing in some instances that people probably walk past every day and probably don't yeah. slow down enough to see. And I think maybe in this this year, people have started to slow down a bit and start to investigate their local environment, whether it be culturally or socially or, you know, I think that's the great thing. Yeah. Where have you been exploring? What have you discovered? Um, well, started like wanting to get out of the, because when you work from home, you just spend too much time on your computer. So because I'm in Rosebury, um, you know, the nature reserve down at Maroubra and stuff like that with all the all the endemic um, East Coast Banksia scrubland type stuff, you know, like so I started going for walks and runs through there and then, yeah, and then just other other little pockets of, of greenery that are, are around. But, yeah, like those little coastal flourishes, even like that, although it's crazy when there's lots of people on, not so much what people probably see in those coastal walks from, say, around Bronte and that, but then when you, you see all those sort of hanging swamps off the sandstone cliffs and stuff and all that water, fresh water coming out of the sandstone into the sea and, yeah, I think it's a really amazing, amazing environment. So, um, mm. yeah, but I also am very keen on, mountains so even like getting up into the blue mountains stuff like that although i'm a bit more of a fan of the snowy mountains i think it's it's that the granite of the snowy mountains is pretty amazing as a as a as a, as a backdrop so yeah oh the snowy mountains is, is so beautiful i actually wanted to ask i recently was looking into doing a bike trip with some friends from the snowy mountains to to the coast to eden and we yeah. came across this route called the Bundian way yeah, do you yeah. know much about that we were yeah, so yeah look it's a bit contentious oh okay <laughs> I, know, I know it is only because that particular uncle that i mentioned to you before um so the so the idea of it is is this, the person's um trying to follow um the path that was that would have so what you would have had in the snow is you had groups coming from all over the place just to come in springtime for 
CFC cultural gatherings, and they used to have up to 13 groups from the, you know, Western New South Wales and then Victoria and the coast who all came together. So there was different, different areas that they travelled up through there. Mm. And the component that's on the coast seems to be reasonably accurate, but some of the places that they've talked through up and through the mountains are probably not, just by knowing from what I learned from my old uncles about how people travelled in those spaces and what the protocols were. So, so yeah, so I think that's a, a, the idea of it was to, and I think there's some more work going on at the moment. It's it's going to be changed probably a little bit as far as the mountain component is, but um, it'd, right. be t- it'd be tough. The stuff that's on the mountain would be tough to ride a, bo- a bike. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we 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 looked at it and then we checked out the the topographic, like the mountain. I was like, that looks really difficult. Let's yeah, yeah, let's yeah. <laughs> let's choose the, a different route. Down at, down at the lower snowy, what they call the lower snow river, is um, really really quite steep. Uh, beautiful mm. spot, like the road that goes down there. That's a really nice spot. You can. Because you can go out through the mountains and go out through um, to get out to Delegate and Bombala, and then you end up down. You end up down at Pambula. Mm. So that's a beautiful. Like you go past uh, Mount Dara and a few others through there, which all those mountains through there are very significant. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks like an absolutely beautiful part of, of Australia. Um, so getting back on track, mm-hmm. I just wanted to touch on. So you obviously have co-founded Yerabingan, but. You before you did that, you did a pretty big stint working for the New South Wales Office of Environment slash National Parks. And your role there, as I've found on LinkedIn, was a senior <laughs> cultural heritage manager. Uh, and I was just curious what a cultural heritage manager does within a government setting. Yeah, so I joined National Parks in 1996. God, so I was like 25, joined National Parks, give away my age. Um, so in those days, it was the role was um, working with community to conserve um, Aboriginal cultural heritage was defined under the National Parks Act. So particular sites. So I, in those days, was the Western Aboriginal Heritage Unit Management. I covered 70% of New South Wales. Wow. So, so within our team, we had um, archaeologists, um, Aboriginal sites officers who used to work together, working with community to preserve sites. So my sort of technical background was... Um, I studied applied science and my doing cultural heritage management, and then I did a lot of work doing rock art conservation. Oh, cool! So a lot of it was about um, managing impacts to rock art, which can be varied, everything from um, you know fungal spores that attach because because the paint's organic, to you know damage from bushfires, to even just um, pests and you know issues with goats and all sorts of things out in these big rock art shelters out, out west. So. Um, so yeah, and then so I worked in the, in that in that role, and then more broadly later on ran a project, well, sort of designed and managed a project called Heritage Near Me, which was working with local communities and around all types of heritage. So I was very much working in local government areas across New South Wales and trying to co-design um, projects with communities that were of community benefit, but then also were sort of sharing and celebrating local heritage, and that meant natural heritage. Aboriginal cultural heritage, you know, more contemporary heritage, all in the one sort of narrative. So, mm. yeah, it was pretty lucky. I got to travel a lot. I used to spend a lot of time in my swag and camping in a lot of national parks, which is pretty lucky. I used to have a lot of access to places that lots of people wouldn't get to go because they're not allowed to go. But um, yeah, yeah pretty, it was a pretty, pretty amazing time. I was pretty lucky. Um, I managed sort of people that were either archaeologists that I studied at university, but then also um, uh, Aboriginal people who were very significant. Um, knowledge holders and respected people within that sort of cultural heritage space during my 20-something years there. So, Yeah. Oh, it sounds like an incredible time. 
I, I especially like the idea of sleeping in a swag out in the middle of nowhere. That sounds really. Well, we used to have, it's funny now, I laugh with my, my old colleagues who are still there and say how they've gone soft because they have meetings in motel rooms now. <laughs> they stay in motels and, and go to conference rooms and whereas we used to uh, cook our own feed. We, we used to uh, extract a few uh, feeds off national parks. I remember once we got asked when we, one of our, I thought the chief, chief executive of our department turned up at a meeting and we had we had kangaroo cooking and he said, oh, you didn't get those on the park. And we said, no, they're at least two foot off the park when we got them. <laughs> I think I know what that means. <laughs> no yeah. further questions. Yeah. Um, so what are some examples of Indigenous land management? Because you obviously that was that was incorporated in what you were doing within um, the national parks. Um, and how can we bring that kind of knowledge, that kind of traditional knowledge into the future of how we look after our land in Australia? Look, I and mean, I think, I mean, a lot of people talk about fire as being, um, you know, fire management at the moment, so it's very topical, which is important. Um, but it's just another thing that I think it's more actually the approach is about, right, is seeing yourself within as, as a contributor to, you know, the ecological web. You know, environmental consciousness is pretty much our spirituality. So rather than seeing ourselves as outside of that or influencing that or yeah, it is actually um, enhancing it in many ways. So Indigenous land management is always about, you know, a way to sustain environments so that the next generation can can utilise it. And so that includes, you know, um, you know rivers and estuaries and, and the sea as well as, as, well as um, landscapes. And I think, I mean, a good example is, I suppose, a, what was probably with dark emu coming out and things like Bill Gammage's greatest state on the earth is people thought that First Nations people just wandered around and found a feed, whatever was there, and just ate it. Um, in fact, kinship is an intricate environmental management tool, landscape management tool, where different people contain knowledge so that they can um, help share it um, and then everybody owns a component of it. And so it's not like one person knows everything, and it's all. I always talk about it's like it's a, it's like our our database. Our database was always held within, you know, the memories of everyone who was in that community. Um, so if you have if you and if you had all that information in one one brain, and you lost that brain, well then you lost everything. So there was this idea of this almost like spider web of knowledge where things overlap. So if someone's disappeared from one mob, that same knowledge was held in another place and was shared back in. It was always replenished. So, you know, being intricately uh, observing um, seasonality, you know, we, we, we say it's spring because it's a particular day of the year, but then we always get surprised about, oh, it's so hot in summer or before summer, or it's so hot in, you know, middle of winter, or so with this the sort of seasonality is, is, is being put into these sort of four seasons that happen supposedly at the same time magically. <laughs> whereas you know for us seasonality is very much about doing and responsibility you know if you do things in those particular times of year um and kinship is related to different species so people think that's not just animals it's plants it's it's even things such as like elemental factors like wind and things like that and they're always about that person's role within in in the community and very much as part of a sustainable approach to land management and i think um a really good example, and we always use it, is, is middens. So we get middens, which are big deposits of camps, which have shells and charcoal and everything in them, and they build up over time, tens of thousands of years. 
and the archaeologists probably thought that they were just like you know it's just a remnant of camping you know so mm. but actually middens are like an environmental handbook that you can read over time you know you can read it through time chronologically because of the the layering of it and it meant that ah. species management you could read this the species that were used in different seasons and therefore they would not they would not use those they use different other different species you could see the health of that environment um based on what was in that midden and it was, it was easily readable to the communities that would come there it wasn't just a matter of habit of oh we just camp here because you know we've always camped here and i mean you think about it like there's there's middens up in places like clobucca on the north coast and that, that are like you know kilometers long and meters deep so there's massive amounts of people and it, to be able to have the resources continually available for those amounts of people to come together was a very you know a, a needed very intricate management about what would be taken, how what what species were there, and then in some instances, some environments were. So we know with uh, um, daisy yams that that actually the way that they grew looked natural, but actually there was an intervention that was an agricultural practice by uh, indigenous people because it became basically a staple mm. across particularly the east coast. So, um, but I mean other other things just about just about enhancing uh, pollination and and those sorts of things around um, just the way that we would. Um, interact with certain environments, um, you know, fishing, everything like that was all all done in a way, and even even about how much of particular animals we would take, and then how much was left for other animals, and even all that sort of stuff. So really, seeing ourselves as an ecological cog, for want of a better word, is 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 very central to the way we would approach it. Where we probably think about these days, you know sort of land management is about extracting what you can from the land rather than having responsibility to it. Yeah. I really loved um, Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu and learning about the irrigation systems. I found that really interesting. Mm. And I was curious if those kind of techniques, those kind of like agriculture and land techniques could be applied in today's world on a larger scale or is that is that not really the point? The point is that we don't we don't want to be producing um, food or doing agriculture on such a large scale and that's where we've kind of come unstuck. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think um, it can be applied to a scale that allows people to provide food for themselves. And I think from a... From a uh, design perspective, there is lots of lessons that can be learned that it can be adapted. And I know we did it on one of our cultural landscape gardens is looking at biofiltration. And, um, you know, one of the things was is the aunties at Redfern want to be able to access certain species they use for weaving and they need a sort of a soak. So within this urban environment, we designed a, essentially a creek bed that acts like that, but then also filters the water that comes through the site, through the species that are within it. So I think definitely having, using those, um, you know, that knowledge around ecological systems design, you know, regenerative design about regenerating landscapes, I think is, is that, that's where Indigenous knowledge, not just in Australia, but around the world can come back into the future of farming, you know, what, mm. what it looks like, diversifying it, applying approaches that means that there is, you know, there's a less um, reliance on water, you know, you don't have to use pesticides, I think, and then I think, yeah, the scale of people. I think people are interested in being able to even grow in an urban environment, grow food for themselves, but then also maybe on a scalable environment on a smaller holding. Components of larger farms could then be diversified into into that. And I think there's a great 
thing about also being able to marry with the new 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 techniques as far as you know uh, farming solar you know thinking about something that we would never been able to do but I think that from a from it it, it very much fits the ethos of of indigenous land management is is having you know sustainable energy use as mm. part of your structure of the farm so I think there's a nice innovation space around taking you know, innovative knowledge, um, regenerative design, and sort of that sort of adaptation over time to climate change. Because I mean, we lived through an ice age in this in this continent and survived and and fed ourselves and and all those sorts of things. So I think there's a nice um, mesh within all of that. Mm. And that's what you're doing with Yarrabingan, essentially. Um, is my understanding is taking that traditional knowledge and kind of applying it through urban design within the urban place. Yep. Yeah, and very much about using co-design, which was usually it was originally used for things such as UX design for technology, as a, as a way of making sure that local Aboriginal communities are involved in the design process in a, in a meaningful way, and that we get all these really cool new ideas by bringing people together into the same room to have big ideation brainstorms and then turn them into designs. I mean, very much around what's the experience and what's the human benefit. Mm. So even about designing a space, it's about experience, it's about connection, it's about what's the diversity and then the environmental outcomes, But which is good because often what happens is we start off looking at one thing and then there's 10 idea, extra ideas come out of it and then they often get added on. Or So we might design a garden, but people are more interested about, well, okay, what do I do when I'm in it? As yeah. But as opposed to how many plants there are and what species they are, you know, so that 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 those things get designed to meet that need rather than here's a beautiful garden, why don't you use it? You know, it's sort of yeah, yeah. And speaking of a beautiful garden, Yerubingan has launched in 2019 the world's first indigenous edible farm on a rooftop in Redfern. Um, I haven't been, but I it's on my list and I've heard a lot about it. Can you tell us about it and what the what the drive and the process to creating that was? Yeah, so it was it was interesting. It was um so when we just started, so I went back and did my business degree, um, studied that full time while I was managing and in in um New South Wales government and we sort of decided to start a start a side hustle business or something to do and we got this contract to look at doing um, cultural landscape gardens called South Everly, which was just sort of, okay, what, what could we design in this space that would bring endemic species back into the site and more importantly, community participation. Mm. So, so while we're doing that, they, Mervac, who was the developer there, said, oh, we've got this building, we want to put a rooftop farm on it. And we, I must admit, we just thought, what's that? What's a rooftop farm look like? Has it got chickens and stuff on it? Or <laughs> we didn't know if we were putting it on the locomotive sheds or... So what we did is we were pretty much inspired by some urban gardens that have been done in Canada by First Nations people over there, um, which in some instances are, are sort of almost cultural, medicinal type spaces. But we had this idea that, well, hey, wouldn't it be cool if it looked like that and felt like this place of um, well-being and connection, but then also you could harvest food off it. And, and for us it was about a proof of concept because all the species that we looked at had never been used on a rooftop. Often we'd have conversations with some, some people and they'd say, oh, that sounds really good, but can you prove, but will they die or will this, what's the, you know, they want to have all this sort of, you know, that's why often the, the choices are very safe around rooftop gardens and stuff is because they want stuff that, you know, you can't kill mm. as opposed to something that can be nurtured and flourished if it's given the right, right attention. So, 
Yeah. It was it was cool. And, and and again, it was a co-design opportunity. We had lots of barriers around engineering. We learned a lot. So I mean essentially it's 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 a prototype project. Um, it worked fantastically. It's got over two and a half thousand plants on it, about just over 40 something species. We gradually added different ones, we'd always try something out. The great thing is is that after we did that project, we knew there was be 20 things we'd do different, which is about um. prototypes. Um so even though everyone's like, oh, it's awesome, it's great. It's like, oh, yeah, but we'll run this differently. And um, so some engineering opportunities around. Um, so the building itself is on a six is a six star uh, green rated. So it recycles all its water. But we were like thinking about how the how the um, garden itself could recycle it because I mean it essentially works like this big planter box that's got a drainage system, free flowing. And I think part of that is the success about why so many species work well on that on that site. Mm. Yeah, we're looking at, I mean, I'm hoping that it's going to just be sort of the catalyst for, there's a number of projects now, and we'd love to see hectares of those, there's hectares of roofs in Sydney, so there's, if, you know, 10% of them became food production, we'd have a pretty amazing outcome in Sydney. So. Yeah. Do you have a favourite edible species from that farm? Oh, look, probably a few. Because um, native raspberries grow in, in the mountains. I don't know oh, yum. Yeah, yeah, so there's a number of, there's a few different species, but the one we had on there, um, we're now growing some more of those on, on the new site. Um, we're just interested, I used to get them as a kid and we wanted to put some on there. And it doesn't seem like anybody really is using them. And they're amazing, like, you know, high, high in vitamin C, they're a bit tardier and, and a bit, you know, a bit different to the normal raspberry. They're related to the, to the, the raspberry that you buy in the shops. Um, so, yeah, so we're looking at a few different uses with those. Um, this year become really interested and I've been using cooking with um, Geraldton wax. Oh, what's that? So Geraldton wax is a Western Australian species that's often used for cut flour. So it's a beautiful, beautiful wax flour. Got almost a similar shape to like an open baronia. Um, but the leaves themselves are almost like, and they grow in, in um, sort of the harsher areas of, of Western Australia. They're almost like a needle. So they're almost like a, the form of like a needle, but they have this really amazing sort of citrus, lemongrassy sort of oil. Mm. When you, they're really cool with seafood and stir fries but i've used them in margaritas oh yum yum <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah so and and people i know who've used that flour used the flowers and never realize that you can eat them so yeah so yes yeah, so looking at growing some and looking at oil extraction and things about how you can use that stuff and, but yeah it's just great lots of things that you can you can buy you can buy it these days which is good so you can buy it you can use it to cook with and yeah amazing fresh smelling species as well so it's a nice thing to grow yeah and so moving on from the farm you've actually you've got a new project that you're working on which is a permaculture farm at, mm-hmm. on, a, on some land outside of sydney can you tell me a bit about that yeah so i mean the interesting thing at the moment is we've got a speaking of bruce pascoe the, the, the property that we've got out near bargo has oh. a heap of grass on it at the moment so and i know he's been looking at cultivating that and, and there's a few it's hard to do so we're also looking at it as well we've got acres and acres of kangaroo grass out there at the moment like if you look on our instagram feed or you can see pictures of me standing in sort of armpit deep kangaroo grass and so the 30 acres out there the idea is is to sort of take the rooftop but expand it into a bigger model of people being able to come out there and have a you know paddock to plate type experience um working with chefs that we do a lot of stuff producing enough stuff that we can have a commercially viable uh, component of the farm um, but then also looking at sustainable development of the site with 
Randwith um, EK Studios and a pavilion. So yeah, so there'll be a sort of 30 acres of this, you know, essentially beauty, beautiful native space that mm. will be harvestable, um, used on site, some of it. So, so, and then we're also combining that with bot botanical oil extraction and things like that. So looking at other stuff that's also like oils that can be used for other things. So as far as trying to use more of the plant too. So when we obviously have fruiting species and investigating, well, okay, does the leaves and the branches from that species have have properties that when we're pruning them rather than you know just turning them into turning them into compost or something like that we can actually extract oils and use them mm. and then again being able to test species out in that sort of environment and so the great thing is we're looking to like design that landscape to have uh, the way the water runs through it is filtrated so that the dam we've got on there we've got native fish in um just put 200 uh, silver perch in it wow um, yeah so the idea is what we're hoping is is that yeah that we have this beautiful space that people can come and stay and have events and yeah use it as a catalyst for our work but also use it as a model to show um aboriginal communities that they can produce stuff for themselves and then participate in a sort of collective market we're keen about promoting the idea of an ethical um supply chain for bush food because i mean that's one of the biggest issues we've got going is that bush food is expanding there's lots of wild resource um, extraction, which, you know, on a small scale is okay, but then if it gets popular, we're going to end up having an impact by having these things taken out of the environment. So how can communities with their own land um, access that opportunity to, feed, to give healthy bush food back to their own communities, potentially trade with other communities like we used to, but then also to be a, uh, a supply force within this sort of big market that's now, that's now pushing forward mm. in Australia. Yeah, and it also sounds like it's a really great educational space for non-Indigenous Australians to come along and and learn more and, and feel yeah. more connected. Well, it's like the rooftop. We find that people, I mean, in this day and age in particular, like food and sharing food and drink together and now as people are coming back into the idea of, oh, okay, a social space around that. And, you know, food's very cultural. And I think the great thing is that we've found people can engage in their own personal sort of connection around um, local Indigenous culture through food. Mm. The great thing is, is we've also been able to engage with other cultures in Australia around food. So, you know, use of native ingredients um, in Asian and Persian cooking and things like that, I think is a really cool, interesting thing. You know, I think it's great that they go, oh, I'm not going to use what I used to use now. I'm going to grow native river mint and use it for all my mint, which was a, a Lebanese lady that we, that we did some stuff with. I think it's a really nice um again bringing together knowledge from two spaces and then creating a new a new future sort of chapter around those is, is really cool foods a nice way for people to get together and then i think then also then it's it's sort of start to extend them into oh okay maybe you know, i'm growing natives in my on my balcony in, in sydney means that i'm adding to you know pollinators and, and and biodiversity just by having lots of different plants and then public spaces becoming more endemic and things like that in many ways and potentially forage from their uh, landscape yeah 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 i was gonna ask what what kind of um bush foods or plants can we forage around the sydney sydney area i mean there's quite a bit i mean the issue that the, the, the problem is is that with any edible plants obviously you've got to worry about what's been sprayed on them mm. So that's one of the things has to be careful about. So like something in Sydney that grows around heaps is, is, is what's unfortunately known as um, pig face, but we call it sea pig. 
<laughs> what do seed, you call it? I call it seed fig. Seed fig. Sea, as in the sea, as in the ocean. Oh, right, right, right. Sea that, fig. Okay. Because you probably said, I mean, it, and the great thing about it, they use it for dune stabilisation. It grows, look, it grows everywhere. If you, if you live in coastal Sydney, you, you see, you see um, Carpabratus is, is, is its, its name, but um, sea fig, pig face, and you get those beautiful purple flowers on it that, that pop out of it. So it's like, if you see them, they're like those like fleshy, fleshy um, succulents. And they'll cast. Yes, 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 yes. I have. I know the ones. So when I was a kid, we used to break them off and use them like aloe, like on a bite and stuff like that. Some people eat the fleshy ones. There's a different species that we use called June banana, which is a much nicer sort of cousin to that as far as taste. Mm -hmm. A lot of salt and comes from sort of um, the Kurong swamp area in South Australia, but it it is also a lot of salt and is really good in stir fries. But yeah, so what happens when that sea fig is pollinated? It swells, but it needs certain native native insects to so certain native bees and hoverflies and stuff. But when it pollinates, it, it swells up underneath it, and it looks like a looks like a big fig essentially. Mm. Um, so yeah, so if you know that the that local council doesn't spray them, yeah, often the thing is all bees if they do get those figs on them, they probably aren't spraying them because the bugs themselves don't like to go on that on that spray. They're okay, and they taste a little bit like a salty sort of a strawberry sort of taste so one of the ones you see a lot obviously is riberies or lily pillies so there's heaps of different lily pillies around sydney and often big stands of them and you um you've probably seen they get the red red sort of fruit on almost like a little little mini apple yeah so lily pillies oh. they're called riberies or lily pillies there's a heap of species it's, like if you know if you know what they look like you'll see them mm. like some places i mean i run rosebury there's like tons of them they even use them in like inadvertently put them in like big commercial developments and so then when they're fruiting you get heaps of them if you need to get to them nice and quick but you can make stuff out of them yeah Uh, you get quite a few lemon myrtles in 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 sydney i've noticed as well like in different different places if you know what you're looking for yeah Um, warrigal greens is another one that you can uh which is native spinach okay again in coastal areas you'll see it everywhere see it everywhere it's pretty prolific but also because it's a leafy species, you have to be careful about it's been sprayed. I mean, if you, I mean, the thing about warrigal greens too is it has uh, oxalates in it. So we usually blanch it or, you know, wash it really well, but essentially blanching it in, in warm water before you use it is, gets the oxalates off it because if you eat too much of it, which is like mini spinach, it gets oxalates, you get kidney stains. Oh, okay. okay. It's got to blanch the warrigal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can, I mean, they're things you can grow really easily, but yeah, yeah they're, they're sort of... Um, and they're and they're amazing amount of vitamin C. So mm. uh, yeah, native spinach. Yeah, and there's all sorts of other bits and pieces, but they're probably ones you see a lot of. I mean, especially yeah. in coastal, coastal uh, environments. Yeah, easy things to 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 get a hold of. So. Yeah, I remember as a kid growing up, my primary school had this beautiful flower all around the tennis courts, and it was a little yellow flower, and at the bottom had a little bit that you pulled off, and it had like a sweet. Is it a honeydew? Oh, honeysuckle. Honeysuckle. Is that a native species? Nah, no. Ah. No. But it is, but it is, my kids used to do the same thing. Uh, a similar taste is um, if you see xanthoreas, so the grass trees, when they get their flower stalks on them. Okay. So they get, you'll see them at a certain time of year, they get cut, the, the flower stalk get, before they blacken off, they get a cover of white, yellow flowers. Like they get totally covered. You see birds and bugs and everything going from. If you see those ones, they're really nice to like rub your hand across them and they like have a have a bit of hanging on them. Yeah. Oh, nice really? You just go straight to the source, yeah, just yeah, what yeah. like, yeah. Oh, wow. Nice so, and yeah, you'd be fighting birds and bugs for them. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, like normally the 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 um, flower stalk has usually it blackens off and it gets the seeds on it and 
gets all rough, but before that, it, they get covered. Usually, I'm just trying to think what I saw. It's probably a couple of months ago, probably October. Mm. Depends on their sort of spot. Um, but yeah, they're, they're pretty amazing. Some of the sort of the grevilleas and, and, and that also nectar on them is, is quite nice at all. People talk about edible flowers. We always say edible flowers means that you can eat them. It doesn't mean they taste that good. <laughs> Most flowers taste like grass pretty much. Yeah, yeah. But they look pretty on a on a cake. I like seeing and the... Fine, yeah. Yeah. Native, violets are, native violets are a really cool one. If you've got a shady spot, you can get that. They're great. We used to put them on our cocktails and things like that as well. Yeah. yeah oh, Tres fancy for the cocktails. Yes. Right. <laughs> is there something to be said about putting um thinking i'm thinking more on a larger scale now with like uh greening our cities because of the heat of mm. climate change is there something to be said about not bringing these species from somewhere else but using native trees because they are more um they're better with water uh, like they don't require as much water and they're just they, they have the capacity to withstand a warmer climate more yeah, I think, and, and look, and I think diversity is, is is a good thing too. I mean, even sometimes there's some species where they just go for one species and get this monocultural sort of um, tree canopy. Um, yeah. So, yeah, uh, I think, A, there's that benefit because, I mean, pollination is, is if we lose pollinators and, you know, there are countries in the world that are struggling. I mean, the US is is taking native bees from Australia over there. and um, So I think... Yeah, as you said, if, it, if it's from that environment, more resilient, um, resilient to pests, so you don't have to worry about that, less water use. Um, but then again, that sort of biodiversity benefit is, is is huge. And I think the more that we can, I mean, yeah, the government at the moment is talking about, you know, planting, having more tree cover and things like that, which is, per, you know, you go to some places in Western Sydney and um, it's just unbearable, it's just too hot. I mean, they're talking, yeah. being, you know, five to 10 degrees hotter than, you know, when you're already looking at 40 degrees, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy for like, and and, that, and the interesting enough, the impact of that to public health, um, let alone how much well-being green landscapes create, you know, mentally as well as physically, I think is, is and then also just this nice thing of, of the identity of those, those systems starting to come about in things like, you know, key trees and stuff like that. People going, oh, okay, this tree was part of the Cumberland Plain or this is part of the Blue Mountain Shale Cap or this is part of East Coast Banks here. You know, you can really start to see it, even though it may be emerging in certain spots within the urban environment. It's there and gives character. And mm. so people always talk about preserving history, but, you know, think to forget about preserving natural heritage as well, something that people can read across the landscape. So yeah but also cultural heritage um i was really upset hearing about those culturally significant trees that were one mm. which is what well, got cut down um down in victoria and, and a few others who are i i'm not sure where they're at with the um the fight against that but yeah that was really upsetting yeah well in many cases those trees are really really old trees and i mean it's it's you know in no instance should they should they be cut down um mm. it's, it's interesting that yeah possibly you know, they like to draw straight lines, obviously. And then when they draw those straight lines, they um, sort of don't worry about what they intersect with. So, yeah, um, no, that's pretty sad. I mean, in my, my time working in national parks, obviously we worked on trees that were um, carved and carved trees and things like that. And it was it was pretty, the amount of land clearing that goes on in Australia is, is, is pretty disturbing. And then it's sort of interesting now that we're sort of in this, this, this spate of, oh, okay, we've got to plant more trees, which is great. Um, but maybe also there should be like an embargo on trees over a certain age should be basically just automatically just can't be touched. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of people, and half the time it's where people will cut them down for review or, you know, the fact that they're, oh, they're impacting their drain or, or yeah, or they're or more or like, you know, in the way of a new road. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So when you go out, so like I recently went out to Mudgee and, and all the way out to the Warren Bungles mm-hmm. and on the way out there it's obviously like you kind of grow up thinking that that flat um, sparse landscape is just natural, but that's not natural. That's been cleared. Yeah. Is that right? So that used yeah, to be. Yeah. And, and the one thing you'll find interesting, when, and, and those used to make me laugh because when I worked in the snow mountains, is that the one place that's not true is like the basalt plains or the snowy plains. So you see those plains up there and you think, oh, my God, they must have cut all the trees down. <sighs> we can actually have trees on those on those basalt plains. They were these amazing native grass meadows. Mm. Um, um but yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, you would have had open woodlands and things like that, but they they would have had you know all sorts of tree coverage, um, and all those riverine areas would have been you know, heavily wooded. Um, but yeah, no, because what they did is they needed to make space for for more sheep, more cows, and and then crops, and then you end up with this mon- I mean, monocultural sort of farming is really detrimental. Yeah, soil and so many things, um, and you know I mean. There are some really good farmers who have really gone back to well, okay, how do I how do I get a natural bounce back in my property and have less stock, but yeah, you know, more resilience. I have a property that that will last for hundreds of years rather than you know when everything's good, I get stuff out of it. When it's not, it's it's a dust bowl, you know. Yeah, yeah, and that only exacerbates the impacts and and effects of climate change even more. It kind of becomes yeah. this. Look, and native and native grasses, you know, like. Um, it's known that that, that, that you know that, that stock will do very well on them, and if if not over over stock, they they can things like kangaroo grass and that can be can be very resilient to that sort of impact. It's just when they just they, they basically work to try and squeeze as many dollars as they can extract in a short period. So it's all about that short term, isn't it? I think the thing is. Yeah. I just have one final question for you, Christian. Mm-hmm. Where can listeners go to learn more about what we're talking about and how can they continue to support your projects and the inclusion of Indigenous farming techniques more broadly? Yeah, look, I think there's I think there's lots of, I mean, personally, you can sort of these days because there is um, good texts um, where we're actually at the moment looking to do an idea for um, a book, which is essentially talking about plants probably our top whatever plants and then thinking about them as food thinking as a spiritual component as a cultural component and getting people sort of interested in that space i think um if you're interested in plants for your own area usually the best thing is is you can engage with a local native nursery because i mean the more local they are the more likely they're going to be sort of um adapted to your to your space if you want to have some in your garden or um but if you're in Sydney, we we work very closely with um, an Aboriginal community enterprise called Indigigrow, who's down at Larkbury School. I've heard about so, them. They're great. And then they've got some great plants. You can order stuff online from them, particular food plants. Um, great thing about that is they've got young Aboriginal school-based trainees working there, and there's this real sort of social benefit around the stuff they do. And so we often like to do stuff with them and send people to them as a great way to support the community enterprise. Um, and as I said before, a lot of the um, market around bush foods and things like that, you know, I think it's like almost $100 million. Only about 2% of that is going to indigenous own companies at the moment. So mm. one of the things working together as different operators is how we can 
see more of that um, market benefit Aboriginal communities directly. Um, yeah, and I think, well, for us personally, the, the farm is going to be a space that we're developing over the next year. We're just doing a plan of management, all those fun things you have to do around planning these things out. Mm. Um, and just an hour from Sydney, um, and the opportunity will be um, we'll have events out there, we'll have opportunities to come and eat food, buy food, all sorts of different stuff. Hopefully by then we would have worked out how to successfully get heaps and heaps of kangaroo grass flour so we can make have bread and all that sort of stuff. But then... Oh, wow. Um, so you can make bread out of the kangaroo grass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's you make it into flour. So we're looking, there's a, there's a number of different species, grass species that you can make into flour. You can even use saltbush, old man saltbush, uh, as well as part of that. So we're sort of in this idea about, well, okay, would it be cool to sort of, even, even having it to the point is now this, you know, bread's this interesting sort of um, example of people breaking bread as this sort of cultural, social type type thing. And we like, we like the idea of, yeah, okay, well, you know, we have our own style of bread, so if we should try and have that reintroduced. So, mm. yeah, and I think, I, think, I think the good thing is is that there is a lot of um, movement towards um, public you know, design having a basis around Indigenous narratives now. So I'm hoping there'll be more and more places. I know we're working on projects at the moment that are big projects in Sydney and that if they're successful in the design will actually allow people to interact more easily in their local area with with um, local Indigenous knowledge. But, yeah, I mean, keep an eye out. Like Follow us on Instagram. You can see when, where we're at. Um, hopefully our yeah. first project on the farm is to build a round-earth seating circle so we can actually host a few events. And then once we get all the building and that starting happening we'll have um lots and lots of species out there hopefully so sounds we're amazing doing a, we're doing a native raspberry beer with wildflower brewing at the moment trying to sort that out and that sounds amazing sounds yeah. absolutely amazing i will be there in full spirit and heart i can't wait sounds yeah. great <laughs> thanks so much for your time christian it's been amazing chatting to you and hearing about everything no worries tess thanks very much for having me on That was Christian Hampson from Yarrabingan. Thanks so much for tuning in. You can follow Yarrabingan on Instagram at Yarrabingan and keep up to date with all their events, etc. And also Indigigrow at Indigigrow. But to make it easier, I'll have those accounts tagged on the podcast Insta. So you can just head there, the Nature Between Us podcast, and check it all out. Until the next step, take care.